2: Hello, this is the Redbox Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Good morning, good morning, good morning.
3: Um, uh, um
2: uh, forgive me. Forgive me. (sighs) Forgive me. Good morning. Now, I have spent hours in the past listening to the porridge-like burble and pop of the Prime Minister. And I've heard that burble turn into an operatic roar as he put his foot in it. Now, yesterday, I went to Boris Johnson World. I was a bit... Ha- Hands up if you've been to Boris Johnson World. Vroom, vroom, rah, rah. Not enough. I-, I was a bit hazy about what I would find at Boris Johnson World. I didn't like it. Uh, Boris Johnson World is very much not my kind of place. It had very safe seats for MPs with second jobs. In discipline in the voting lobbies when it comes to social care and sewage in rivers and trains... ...and letting your mates off. Heavy emphasis on building bridges to places which never actually get built. Even if they are a bit stereotypical about Old Etonians. But the real reason for me going on about Boris Johnson World... ...was about the power of UK creativity. Who would have believed that a politician that looks like... ...a mattress dressed up for a court appearance... ...or a marshmallow held over a campfire for a bit too long... ...or a sausage frozen and defrosted a few too many times... But a politician, a journalist that was sacked by The Times, rejected even by his own cabinet colleagues like Michael Gove. Who would have thought that he would now be exported around the world to 180 countries with people amazed, amused, appalled in America and in China and in the New Forest. And a business of handing out PPE contracts that's worth at least £6 billion in this country. £6 billion and counting. I think that's pure genius, don't you? No government in the world, no Whitehall civil servant in the world could conceivably have come up with Boris Johnson. So my final message to you, we are blessed. Thank you very much for your kind attention this morning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Right, coming up on today's episode, an absolutely cracking panel for you as we ask, what does Putin want? We've got Fiona Hill, former advisor to George W. Bush, President Obama and President Trump, giving us the perspective from the USA. And Tony Brenton, former British ambassador to Moscow, really interesting i just sort of let them just ask them one question and just let them go and then off they went describing it. it's so complicated but they explain it very very well exactly what uh, Putin is up to we've also got a former spokesman for Putin uh, giving us the perspective from Moscow before that as ever it's our columnist panel it's Tuesday so it must be Finkelvich it's Daniel Finkelstein and David Ibronovich Asked people to send in their the, the small things that give life meaning. And uh we've had two which relate to Finkovich. So, uh, Carl says, seeing Danny Finkelstein's books piled up on top of each other in no particular order or size in the background on Newsnight last night, so much better than all those smart bookcases, neat and tidy, you normally see. <laughs> I'm afraid they are in some sort of order. Those
4: books, as opposed to the ones on the bookshelf, are the ones that are helping me with the book on my parents. If you look very closely, you'll find that they're either books about Nazis and concentration camps, or about Soviet leaders
2: and gulags. So I hate to disappoint you, there's a, there is actually there is method a method. Might, yeah. uh, on the subject of books, Ken has been in touch saying, Can you tell David his Party Animals book is in my local Oxfam for one ninety nine? I will buy it later today, but sadly, no sign of a signed Barwell. Sorry, Danny. So that's a bit of good news, David. What's the bad news? (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, the signed bar was because last week we were talking about the fact that your signed copy of uh, Gavin Barwell's book had been stolen from your car. Anyway, uh, keep sending those in. It's all the usual ways. Let's talk about speeches. You've written a lot of speeches, Danny, in the past. I have. For a wide variety of people, politicians and
4: others. I, re- I really felt for the person who'd worked on that. I, I, I did once um, work on a, a, a whole shadow manifesto of Labour, and Brian Mawinney, who uh, had a lot of good qualities, but God bless him, he wasn't very funny, let's put it that way, and he decided it, what, this document was funny <laughs> and he was going to read it out. And him and Michael Heseltine, who looked appalled, to be fair, read it out together. Then Michael White said, is this the worst press conference that's ever been held? by a political party, and this was uh, based on a document I had actually written for a, <laughs> a government. Uh, I, I did think I was going to be on the front page of The Sun the next day with, um, with Is This Britain's Unfunniest Man? <laughs> <laughs> Although I wasn't even on the front page of the
2: Sun. <laughs> it was more ignominious than that. Because we're always told that Boris Johnson writes his own speeches. And even the bit, the normal bit at the beginning, was quite sort of yeah. Johnson and it there, there, There's clearly that, there, clearly he has a base speech and he basically
4: takes them and scribbles all over them. And he obviously shuffled them while he did that. You know, actually, that bit of it, that can. Basically, happened. the bit where he lost his place. I don't know about you, David. You possibly haven't done that because you're incredibly fluent. I have done that a couple of you oh. know, a f- couple of times. And actually, usually it's the speeches I know best. You lose your place in yeah. them. But it was <laughs> it was the other stuff, the stuff he'd <laughs> scribbled down. Really, which just wasn't appropriate to the to the circumstances.
2: And the pepper pig thing, for example, was that. But that came post losing. I wondered whether that was properly that wasn't even he was just literally just freewheeling at that point. mean, He talked
4: about, about pepper Pig looking like a Picasso hairdryer, but his speech is often look like a Picasso <laughs> hairdryer, actually. It's quite an apt analogy.
2: So there's one theory that I've got about why he lost his uh, way so much, because this is what Andrew Mitchell said uh, when he was on the show last week, uh, and he was explaining the importance of keeping your officials on side um, uh, because there's a real risk of what happens if you, if you don't. One um, minister who so antagonised his officials um, that he w- raced across to the house to make a speech and he had a speech given to him by his officials. He hadn't read it through properly. But he'd so antagonised them that as he turned over from page six to page seven, page seven just said, Minister, you're on your own. <laughs> Do you think that's what's happened here, David?
5: No. I mean, I've given quite a few speeches, not as many as uh, uh, as Boris Johnson. Um, this has never, ever happened to me. Because it's the one thing that you fear if you have a paginated speech, it's the one thing you make absolutely certain doesn't happen to you, or that you have a kind of thought in your head about what you're going to do. If it does, he, it was one of these things where you just felt he suddenly not only didn't know where he was in the speech, he didn't know where he was at all. <laughs> he didn't know. And... and I do remember having this kind of fear in the very earliest days of broadcasting that all of a sudden you go completely blank and you not just forget the subject you're talking about, the immediate sentence you had in mind but that the whole thing would desert you. Who is this person? I'm in the studio. What is this studio? What What, what is the point of it all? And, so on. and I, think he feel, I feel he had an existential moment. And well, I'm Dave, not joking. Dave, I think he completely lost where he was and what he was doing for a moment.
4: David Cameron did say to me that when he did the first conference, the first televised debate, which, as you remember, didn't do very well in, he said at the very beginning of that, he suddenly looked up and thought, all the people that were watching and... Uh, he was in the middle of this, and what was he going to say? And everyone was relying on him. And he said that for the first time in his life, he was properly nervous. But I, my theory on Boris Johnson's is is the opposite. Actually, I, I think it was he was completely winging it. I think that is. I think this is somebody who that is the top of his game, right? I know that sounds a bit weird to say, but um, the important way to understand it, he's super confident, he was winging it, Um, most of the time, that stuff works brilliantly for him, and it completely deserted him, because it wasn't appropriate in the circumstances. I don't think they'd thought through, you know, and he hadn't thought through, whether this was the right audience for that kind of approach. Um, So, uh, we get analysis by it all went wrong, obviously the bit where he shuffled his papers went wrong, but that is his style, and a lot of the time people think it's very funny, and I, I think he he didn't appreciate that that wouldn't happen on this occasion. Um, Do you think it's also, oh, no, David,
2: no. it's partly... It reminded me a bit, bit of the Ed Miliband bacon sandwich in that, in and of itself, the Ed Miliband bacon sandwich was quite funny, but the reason it l- took hold is because it sort of summed up everything that people thought about. It. And if Boris Johnson was riding high and everybody loved him, he could have winged it yesterday and he'd have brought the house down. And instead what it's done is slightly crystallised everything that's gone wrong... In the last two or three weeks, that this is a man who's not across, Owen Paterson, well, social care, sewage and rivers, um, uh, trains to the north, you know, and and also, it turns out, even even his old his old sort of party
5: trick, he doesn't work anymore. Well, the, the losing the place isn't a party trick; it's a disaster. No, but I mean, but, but, happen, no, but I mean, I which... suppose
2: the the scale of disaster is greater because it comes yeah, if, no, you're, if you're riding high, suddenly everything is going wrong.
5: It's higher because it, it's, it's actually worse because you expect him to be able to busk it and get away with it. And actually he's completely flummoxed. He's flattened at that moment. That means subsequently when he tries to pick up the joke, his audience are feeling actually incredibly anxious. What he's made is they don't, they don't think he's in command. They don't think it's funny and so on. Yeah. And then he goes off on this kind of prolonged pepper Pig thing, which I mean, you know, I I know that he's been in the perpetual state of having young children for the last thirty years or so. <laughs> uh, Boris Johnson. Yeah, it was muffins um, a mule. But land, actually, there comes original. a point where you expect. There comes a point where you expect people to have kind of got beyond that, really, and to uh, and so and so and so. Listening to the what how the audience take on that was actually really painful. I gathered that earlier this morning, William haig told our colleagues on Times Radio that he was clenching at that moment I mean and Danny I'm not sure what the what clenching means it's obviously a technical expression used by a Tory uh, leaders, etc., cetera, uh, uh, and so on. But I have a feeling it's not good. No, it isn't. Look, uh, you know, somebody
4: tried this morning arguing with me on Twitter who likes Boris Johnson that it had all been a great success because it connected with people who watch Peppa Pig. Uh, it's so funny when people do that. Obviously, it was a political disaster. It, was, it went over badly with the audience and it created a metaphor. Matt, you're correct. That's exactly what the problem with it was. But a uh, skill is appreciating when that moment is and being able to... Cater your remarks. You know, it turns out I think that when he lost his place, that was actually the high point of that speech. Um, and uh, you know, because it wasn't an appropriate speech for the audience that he was giving it to.
2: And on the on the sort of the the, the substance of it, because he was addressing the CBI, and we I spoke to Tony Danker, the head of the CBI, uh, Sunday night. And we played it out yesterday, and he laid out. Some quite interesting, thoughtful things about the role of business and the markets and levelling up and all of that. And he was, I think he sort of had higher hopes uh, for the Prime Minister. And then you've got the Times' leading article today, uh, Pig's Ear. At a time of economic anxiety, business leaders deserve better than Boris Johnson's shambolic speech yesterday. They got it instead from Keir Starmer. I mean, it goes on to say that Labour is still a long way from real rebuilding its economic credibility. <laughs> But can Boris Johnson afford to make mistakes like this? That's very
4: significant. The
2: the, the
4: Times leaders have been pretty critical of the Prime Minister for a long time. Uh, But that that second part of it, that is a new part, actually. And uh, Boris Johnson should pay attention. Keir Starmer has clearly moved the the Labour Party somewhat in a fiscally conservative direction. How credible that really is and how whether he'll be able to impose that is, you know, remains to be seen, and whether Labour Party members like it, because they, you know, if you don't like um, fiscal conservatism, Labour Party members wake up, that is what your leader is doing. Personally, I do like it. So I approved of the direction that he took. And I think it's electorally uh, uh, savvy as well uh, for a Labour leader. So um, yeah, I think that was quite significant. And he may not have got a big impact because the because Peppa Pig stole all of his coverage. But um, I thought that was
2: also very significant yesterday. David Sarah's just messaging. Boys made two speeches later in the evening that went down well, but you focus on the speech that didn't go so well. So it reminds me slightly of that. Um, it's a Steve yep, Coogan... Yep, Sarah.
5: Is, is it is it the day to day
2: where Steve Coogan's a swimming pool attendant and he goes, in nineteen seventy-nine, no one died. In nineteen eighty, <laughs> no one In nineteen eighty-one, <laughs> someone died. In nineteen eighty two, no one di-. There's clearly a reason why we focus on the of on course. the on the on the disaster. It was also, you know, the one that was televised, and it was a it's, big deal. It's it
4: really of- uh, it's very important for people who are conservative-inclined, who were listening to that yesterday, not to get themselves in a position where you can't accept that something that was clearly a disaster, that people could see was a disaster, is a disaster, because you don't want it to have been one. It was one, right? And <laughs> then you need to think about why it was one, and begin to think how you avoid it being... But no no wisdom lies down that route. Um, everyone th- just looks at you and thinks you're being ridiculous, and doesn't trust your judgments on other things. So, uh, so when something it- is is a disaster you need to notice it you it, need to call it for what it is
5: yeah it's the world cup final harry kane has got the penalty in the 91st minute he steps up and skies it over the bar and sarah turns around and says yeah but he scored one last week yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank yeah, you for well, that sarah. true other other people you know uh, ruth got in touch earlier saying i should shut up about boys and make yourself look more foolish than he did i mean that's that's a view um and more broadly, Danny, this, um, this idea of Tory unhappiness. Mm-hmm. Laura Koonsberg tweeted yesterday uh, saying there's a lot of concern inside this. is Well, originally it was a senior number 10 source and it became a Downing Street source, which made the... the Conspiracy theorists said, oh, it must be Rishi Sunak. Uh, so there's a lot of concern inside the building. It's just not working. Cabinet needs to wake up and demand serious changes, otherwise it will keep getting worse. If they don't insist, he just won't do anything about it. This isn't a cabinet that's going to rise up against Boris Johnson, is it? Well,
4: my, my view when I hear those things is, like, you, you supported the Conservatives. Uh, you wanted Boris Johnson to be the leader of the Conservative Party. You won a majority. He's running the government. What, who did you think he was, right? <laughs> uh, if, you know, if that yeah. speech came to you as a surprise yesterday, who did you think Boris Johnson was? Um, I, this is who he is. Um, he isn't going to be any different before. He wasn't any different in the past. Uh, it's what the country chose. Be- <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, along the way, I had a lot of misgivings about different parts of that. Um, and they haven't changed much either. Uh, and so when I hear people say that, who, who were previously happy with it, it sort of seems to have come as a big surprise to them that Boris Johnson's a bit shambolic and lost his place yeah. and talks about Peppa Pig. That, that,
5: why is that surprising? Well, that's why we're very, we're, we're very close, aren't we, in, in all this, to the King's Wicked calendar. Counselor syndrome. We've, I mean, we've we've touched on this a little bit before. If you can't say that your leader is a shambolic semi idiot, then the thing that you have to say is that uh, his team are no good, or the civil service are no or somebody somebody else, the advisors are no good. I mean, I saw it. I saw it put around. I think this morning I heard it. Put around, that his team in number ten needs to get a grip. And you think, hold on he's the leader of his team yeah. in number 10 and so on who and, and danny you can maybe fill this in if he's not going to get a grip when people say somebody else in number 10 should get a grip who do you think they're referring yeah. to because okay. i
4: can't see it he's very we we've made i think correct and very profound criticisms of boris johnson it is also important to say the other things that can't change he has got a lot of charisma and appeal uh he's basically very often moderate and centrist the policy of brexit, which I disapprove of, was one that won a majority in the country. He had a solution to get through to get the brec- to get brexit through albeit you know i didn't think it was the right solution and it's turned out to be flawed it 's important to recognize why he ended up being prime minister so his critics need to understand his strengths just as his supporters need to understand uh, what his weaknesses nah. are and and i don 't think by the way that you know the fact that he lost his place in one speech which absolutely is indicative of who he is um you know is like um by itself the big revealing moment for his opponents just like it ought not to be a great revealing moment for his supporters either
5: sure danny but you missed out one of the biggest reasons that he was uh, elected by the, with the majority was in 2019 which was none of those things but was a guy called jeremy corbett um a uh, sure. really significant factor in the, in the 2019 election. And you talked earlier, and I think it was significant in the Times leader about the mentioning of the speech that Keir Starmer actually did make to business leaders and that was approved of and so on, and which will come back in small ways in the future. He's not got Jeremy Corbyn anymore. <laughs> that he's gone. Uh, Keir Starmer is making it pretty clear that Jeremy Corbyn and Corbynism is gone. So the next thing that Johnson faces is, is, not, kind of something, is not something that people will forgive you your sins for because they're so worried about the other guy.
2: And it was really telling, particularly um, during the Labour Party conference when I interviewed Tony Dank from the CBI. He was very, very positive about the Labour Party, and f- you know, and the sure. Labour Party was laying it on thick with friends of business and all that. And if 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 the Labour Party's getting its act together just at the moment where Boris Johnson's act is falling
4: apart, Look, I mean, I, let's let's sort like steady on here, right? I mean, he's Keir Starmer's made like a couple of speeches in order to be fiscally conservative. You have to do things like make say no to spending decisions, for example, and have your party behind you. I, I've got still as you. You know, David might imagine I've got still quite a lot of big doubts about whether I really buy that, and whether or not Keir Starmer is a strong enough character to impose his vision if he does have it. Considering that he ran in the leadership election saying almost exactly the opposite to that, so there's a lot he has to prove. You know, I face it, okay, I'm a hard audience, but a lot he has to prove, I think, in general, not just to me, but to other people about that approach. Uh, but you, but David is completely right. Obviously, one of the components of people choosing Boris Johnson was. Uh, was Jeremy Corbyn and that yes is different than the next general election
2: Daniel Finkelstein and David Day, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times box up next what does Putin want
0: selling a little or a lot Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Thousands of troops are amassed on the border with Ukraine. A migration crisis on the Belarus-Poland border, stoked by the Kremlin. Russia's long-range nuclear uh, nuclear bombers flying near the EU's border with Poland. Plus, an energy crunch, fears of gas supplies being turned off in a cold winter. That's before we get to long-standing issues like the poisonings on British soil, the threats on cyber and even tensions in space. So what does Vladimir Putin want? What is he up to? I caught up with Fiona Hill, the British academic who worked for Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama before advising Donald Trump on Russia, and Tony Brenton, former British ambassador to Moscow under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And I asked them what they thought Vladimir Putin's long-term game plan actually is.
3: Well, look. I think the master game plan. would be interesting to, you know, hear what uh, Tony has to say, because of course, you know, his experiences in Moscow were, you know, at a time filled with tension as well between, uh, you know, the Russians and uh, and the West. And I think, you know, he had some particular personal experiences of that that are fairly illuminating. But look, from the point of view of Vladimir Putin, he and the group around him have been asking for, you know, best part of the last 21 years that he's been in power, and it goes back actually to. Um, way back 30 years, and it's going to be the anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union this December, 30-year anniversary, for a new settlement in Europe, a new security arrangement. They've been pushing this for an extraordinary long time, one way or another, uh, making it extraordinarily clear. Uh, Putin's Munich speech back in 2007 laid this out. Previous times before, um, under Boris Yeltsin, there were suggestions of, you know, could we not just sort of sit down and, you know, work things out so that there would become new rules of the game. Uh, you know the idea is that Russia was going to join NATO and other European security institutions that we kind of you know, banded around at the very beginning of uh, the 1990s after the dissolution of the soviet union really didn 't go anywhere. Russians have been long dissatisfied with the nato russia Council they always wanted to have a veto on uh, NATO activity uh, nearby in fact, they anticipated that NATO would not expand that was kind of their understanding uh, under gorbachev uh, and you know after one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine when uh nato warplanes bombed Belgrade during the uh, kosovo crisis and uh when serbia uh you know refused to basically back down on activities uh during the the balkan wars most russians uh it doesn't matter what their political persuasion was assumed that NATO was still in the uh, military alliance business and perhaps targeted uh, and potentially uh, could be targeted in the same way against uh, Russia. So you've had a great deal of suspicion about NATO activity. And they've drawn red lines over and over again, uh, since uh, certainly 2014, the annexation of Crimea, which uh, was triggered by uh, Ukraine's desire to associate more closely with Europe, which the, the Russian government and Putin made very clear they saw as a kind of a stalking horse, Trojan horse for drawing closer to NATO, particularly after the request for a membership action plan in 2008 by Ukraine and Georgia together. I mean, basically, the bottom line is this has got a long history behind it of Russia basically saying the current European security arrangement for us is unacceptable. We've drawn a red line about further NATO expansion, and we want you you know, kind of Europe and the United States, NATO, you know, whoever it is to so sit down at a table with us and work this out. And if you don't, well, there will be consequences. And the consequences will certainly be inflicted against Ukraine, Georgia and other countries, Moldova, you know, you name it, who are trying to kind of push, you know, more closely towards European security alliances.
2: Uh, Tony, your you'll take on it. And I suppose <laughs> the thing is that the countries are at the forefront of all of that aren't the ones, you know, if, if the West is choosing not to engage with Russia, it's, it's not Britain and America which are on the front
1: line of the, the pressure that's coming from, from Russia. The, the, the Belarus stuff stuff is uh, Lukashenko basically freelancing. Putin is stuck with Lukashenko because he really doesn't want an alternative Western-leaning regime. He's not really a, a key agent in that. He, indeed, he's pulled Lukashenko back from some of the appalling things that Lukashenko was talking about. The gas crisis, in my view... Um, isn't a crisis. The Russians are delivering on their contracts as they have since those contracts were originally created back in the 1980s. The West is short of gas, um, is ironically opposing a pipeline which could bring it more, which is the Nord, Nord, Nord Stream 2 pipeline, um, and um, Putin is, is delivering on his contracts and is declining to deliver more precisely to, make, to place pressure on the West to get that pipeline open. The really interesting and challenging crisis is the one around Ukraine, where indeed the Russians are massing forces for the second time this year. And Putin has been very clear with regard to Ukraine. He gave a talk in the Russian foreign ministry um, a few, a couple of weeks ago, where he said, we're going to maintain tension there because that's the way of avoiding a, a conflict. And the point he was making is that Russia has been watching Ukraine sail off in a Western direction, if I can put it that way. He's watching Western states supply arms to the Ukrainian government, encourage Zelensky, the Ukrainian prime minister, to take an increasingly hostile line to Russia. So it's a matter of demonstrating to the West that there are limitations on how much more Western activity in the direction the West has been going, Um, they will they will permit. And I, I, I think this is very dangerous, actually, because if you listen to the rhetoric coming out of places like Washington, D.C., um, London, actually, um, and other places where delivering a wall of rhetoric. And there's a very serious question in my mind as to whether that wall of rhetoric will actually turn into physical support for Ukraine if this thing turn, as they say, kinetic, which it easily could.
2: And it's been, it's quite striking because it's not just Britain and, and Russia, even, you know, Germany and France uh, pledging support for Ukraine, um, yeah, uh, warning with this dangerous buildup of Russian forces. But it turns to me totally like you're concerned that they won't necessarily put their money where their mouth is, which could leave Ukraine in a really difficult
1: situation. Yeah, well, we've been here before. I mean, back in 2008, Georgia was in effect given lots of encouragement by the United States to stand up to big bad, the big bad bear. So the Georgians stupidly launched an attack on Russian peacekeeping forces in South Ossetia. The, the Russians swept in, um, and the, of course, the United States did nothing about it. So the Russians have, already have an example of Western inability to follow through its rhetoric. It's also worth to say that the Russians regard the West as rather weak at the moment, the United States in particular. Um, There's been the Afghanistan fiasco catastrophe, demonstrating a a Western lack of uh, follow through, having taken on very heavy commitments. And there is, I was just in Washington, D.C. last week, but I'd be interested in Fiona's comment on this. Um, There's an increasing obsession, can't increase much more, in Washington, D.C. with China. Uh, So, um, Fiona, um, President Biden has
2: talked about wanting a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. Is that sort of wishful thinking, you know, in an ideal world, that's what or or does he have any path to uh, securing that? I mean, obviously, the relationship between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin was a a slightly peculiar one. Um, Does Joe Biden know how to get to a stable and predictable relationship with Russia?
3: Well, I don't think uh, anybody is completely sure about how to get to a stable and predictable relationship uh, with Russia at this particular juncture, because we have, um, it's not just the issue of China that Tony's laid out, but we probably have a completely different perspective on, you know, how we see the world at this this moment. You know, first of all, the United States actually does not want to be in a confrontation with Russia, just to be crystal clear, and hasn't done probably, you know, since Reagan Gorbachev. H.W. Bush... Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama have all tried some kind of reset, staring into Putin's eyes. Trump did a lot of staring into Putin's eyes, you know, trying to kind of, you know, charm Putin in his case. The United States has, you know, many times made it clear that they're not in the business of carving up Europe or, you know, still playing a kind of geopolitical game in Europe. It's seven decades since the end of World War II. It's three decades now since the end of the Cold War. And it's really kind of a question here of European security and what European security looks like. But there is an element here that is of the risks of other territorial disputes, because there isn't just Ukraine and questions about Ukraine's sovereignty. And Ukraine has been a sovereign power and independent since the dissolution of the Cold War 30 years ago. But there's a whole host of other territorial disputes in Europe that are still unresolved. Kosovo, Serbia comes right to mind. I mentioned 1999 before, Republika Srpska talking about pulling out of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And then the Indo-Pacific region, you know, writ large, the current obsession of the United States. India and China uh, basically fired on each other in a pretty hot conflict not so long ago. Uh, China is putting a lot of pressure on Taiwan. Uh, and talking, you know, in their bellicose terms about Taiwan, but also is pushing against all of the other territorial disputes that China is pushing on in the South and East China Seas, Spratly Islands, Scarborough Shoals, Senkaku Islands. So Japan and India are watching what's happening here with some alarm. Russia's also, and this is um, HMS Defender uh, episode in the Black Sea, laid claim to the Black Sea writ large. So I worry a little bit about, you know, shades of Crimea war past. And so basically, you know, we've seen Turkey in on the action here, which we hadn't mentioned. And I actually thought some time ago that given uh, Turkey and Russia's interactions in both Syria and Libya, and now in the Caucasus, in Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, there's another you know, territorial dispute that's hot, and Russia's moved in there, but Turkey's also looking for a way in. I thought that Turkey might be pushing for some kind of condominium in the Black Sea, because Turkey's still a member of NATO, hasn't liked NATO in the Black Sea either, you know, for uh, similar sorts of reasons, for its own sovereignty in, the, uh, in in the region. But Turkey's now supplying drones to Ukraine, just like it did to Azerbaijan. And Turkey doesn't look like it's going to back down here either. So I see the contours of a really big mess here. And, you know, part of it, as Tony has said, we've had a lot of hot rhetoric, but without actual, you know, uh, basically pushback. But I do think that this is an issue now here for European security writ large. The annexation of Crimea was the first forcible annexation of Turkey after World War II. The Russians will push back and say, aha. But, you know, Turkey went into Cyprus in 1974, but yes, has, and has not as yet annexed North northern Cyprus. And there have been conflicts around. But this was the first forcible annexation of territory since World War Two. And I, you know, Tony, I don't know, you know, kind of what you think about, you know, Ukraine and, you know, where it is and whether it deserves its full sovereignty and independence, but we've all recognized that. And many times we've, you know, given guarantees um, of, uh, Europe- of of Ukraine's territorial integrity, they haven't been. They've been pretty toothless. Absolutely, they've raised all kinds of expectations. We've made a lot of promises that we can't deliver on. I personally thought it was a huge mistake uh, to push forward with membership action plan for Ukraine and Georgia in 2008 when they asked for it in um, in uh, Bucharest in the summit there because we couldn't actually pull that off because there was so much resistance so we created the wor- worst of all worlds which is the worst of all worlds which is an open door policy for ukraine and georgia for nato and russia trying to not just slam the door close the door but blow up the door because all of this is about as i said before russia's determination that ukraine will not draw closer to nato this is what this is the flashpoint right now
1: Absolutely right. I mean, all of that dry timber you describe, and the, all sorts of horrible things could happen. But the core of it is actually whether Ukraine maintains um, sovereignty as a, as, as, a, as a state. Well, it will maintain notional legal sovereignty, but whether we, the West, will defend its right to arm itself to the teeth, which I'm sure Zelensky would love to do, right on Russia's border. And Putin has been pretty clear that that's not going to happen. So you're down now to an arm wrestling match between, on the one hand, Russia, who's going to stop it. And I believe, I don't know at what point Russia turns to military action, but certainly if Ukraine made significant steps towards joining NATO, I'm absolutely convinced that the Russians would send send their troops in there. Now we're not, we're nowhere near that at the moment. And I think the current uh, stepping up of troops on the, on the border is, is to demonstrate to the West, just how much the Russians care. But if the West maintains its current policies towards Ukraine, as I say, of arming it up and turning it into a close ally, then at some point, Putin, I suspect, is going to find some way, not necessarily wholesale invasion, but uh, other subversive means, I don't know, um, to try and stop that. And at that point, we're at a very very dangerous stage. And, (laughs) you know, I'm a Brit. Do I want young Brits to go out and fight for Ukraine? Do the Germans want young Germans to go out and fight for Ukraine? It's a very interesting moment. It's a little story. Um, at the beginning of the Georgia war. I was actually in Moscow at the time. I saw it happen. Uh, and, and, the, and the story is, I mean, the Georgians started the war, of course. Um, and the story is that the Russians then swept in. And there was a conversation in the National Security Council, in your old abode, um, Fiona, um, where um, all the generals around the table were and saying, yeah, I can go in and stop the Ruskies. We can bomb the tunnel or that. And Steve Hadley, who was then National Security Adviser, said rather quietly to them, gentlemen, do you want to go to war with Russia over Georgia? Whereupon a great silence followed and US inaction followed.
3: Can, it's I, interesting can qu- I just actually make a quick question? I actually happened to be at that meeting because I was the oh, national right. intelligence so officer briefing right. everybody. And it was Admiral Mullen who actually said something on this because there was a, a and it was actually a very dangerous moment. And I also just want to do a bit correction. There was a pretty strong provocation from the Russians, a deliberate baiting of uh, Saakashvili, just take it from me. I know what I'm talking about. I was the intelligence officer, saw all the stuff happening. Yep. The Georgians were cruising for a bruising, as we might sort of say up in the north, because they certainly wanted to test the proposition themselves about how much support that they might get. And there was also this was happening on split screen during the Beijing Olympics. Yep. Yep. And President Bush thought that the Georgians had been warned off from doing something. And so he has the misfortune of meeting with Putin during the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, and discovering that the Georgians had not warned off, as they'd been, uh, you know, kind of given advice not to rise the provocation, and had in fact done something. And the hesitation in that moment gave Putin the idea that he had a at least a, an orange light, and that nobody would react. And indeed, that's kind of unfolded, and that I think has set a very unfortunate precedent for what happened next, because the United States, everybody else was not on the same page for pushing back. They'd been trying to stop the Georgians from doing something stupid, but the Russians and Georgians had been going at each other for some long period of time. And this is where we are are again with Ukraine, that the Ukrainians, you know, kind of like the Georgians, wanted to exert their own um, independence. They wanted to kind of be able to sort of push back against Russian incursions into their territory, but a similar sets of provocations Similar sets of kind of testing. But what Putin will say is that, you know, basically your Western allies promise a lot. They never deliver. I threaten. I deliver. No, I didn't
1: say they never deliver. I say they yes. didn't deliver. On no, but, but, Putin, yeah, yeah, yeah. but
3: Putin says Putin says that yeah. they never deliver. So that's kind of what Putin has t- told the Georgians after the Georgian war is, you know, your Western allies, partners, Promised a lot, you know, NATO membership action plans. They, don't turn they didn't at the deliver. Yeah, yeah. And I have threatened and I have delivered. And so, after a certain point, just as you're suggesting here, you know, the kind of Russians may well feel that well they need to deliver on some you kind know, of coercive action here because the West isn't going to, you know, step up and actually, you know, support Ukraine just like it didn't with Georgia.
1: Sorry, can I just make a couple of points to Fiona? Yeah. Um, firstly, um, there are other examples, Syria. Yes. And go and, and and the second point really is that Ukraine matters to Russia much more than Georgia or Syria. Right. And that's a very important point for us to keep in our minds going
2: forward.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, Tony, I just want to ask you finally. Um, Boris Johnson spoke to President uh, Putin a couple of weeks ago, just before the COP26 summit, and in this sort of official briefing from Number Ten, we were told that Boris Johnson had said. The UK's current relationship with Russia is not the one we want.
1: What does that mean in diplomatic terms? Well, we've, we seem to have kind of chosen our role. I mean, saying the relationship is not what we want, actually, it says the relationship is wrong, which it is. Uh, and I, I see British diplomats and people in the Foreign Office quite a lot of the time. And there's, the, there's very little real contact or exchange relation at all, which is a bad thing, really, between two really geographically quite proximate nuclear powers. Um, I think the British government has chosen to be at the forefront of the the hardliners in Europe and this goes back quite a long way on Russia. Now the implication that this thing could get better um, I think may be be misleading actually. I'm very struck. The HMS Defender incident where there was some argument in Whitehall before the ship sailed. I don't think they're making a claim towards the Black Sea uh, but what the ship was intended to say was we don't recognise obviously Russian suzerainty over Crimea's uh, territorial waters. The Russians do. Um, they fired shots, not at the ship, but in the general direction of it, and the ship then left. The point I wanted to make about how bad the relationship now is, that this is the first time in 25 years of dealing with Russia that I've seen shots fired between the UK and Russia. Um, and that's a, a slightly symbolic moment in the way our relationship has been, has been going. There, there is a way out of this other than war, which is that you, without visibly backing down, begin to develop an alternative, a more positive relationship with Russia in areas where you can. And the dialogue, which Biden has now established with the Russians, very, very incipient at the moment, may go nowhere. But that's the way, actually, you begin to generate discussions, common interests and so on. And that way you can hopefully over time bring the temperature down. So I have to say all credit to Biden and his administration for making the effort. may well not work, but all credit to them.
2: That was Tony Brenton, former British ambassador to Moscow, under Tony Blaine Gordon-Brown. We also heard from Fiona Hill, the British academic who worked for Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama before advising Donald Trump on Russia. And if you want to hear more from Fiona Hill, uh, we discussed her book with her a couple of weeks ago. You can find that on the Redbox podcast. Just take a look. Sergei Markov is a former spokesman for the Russian president and joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. From from your perspective, what what is it? What is going on? There's a sort of whole lot of threads here. Uh, that if you pull them all, they all lead back to Moscow. What what is it? In an ideal world, what would what is it that President Putin would like?
6: Vladimir Putin uh, like Russia uh, to be in in security, and uh, step by step uh, to uh, reestablish a positive relationship with Western. Uh, uh, restaurant- coalition within the United States and European Union, country and uh, Great Britain. Um, And uh, also, he um, understands very well now the threat to Russian security now increasing. And uh, I want to concentrate on this uh, Ukraine issue because the immigration situation on the uh, Belarusian-Polish uh, uh, border, first of all, the country between Belarus and Poland, and uh, artificially spread out to the relations between Russia and the European Union. But uh, Ukraine is uh, much more important. Uh, uh, our concern is that, uh, first of all, uh, Ukraine has no sovereignty. Its sovereignty limited, as uh, it was uh, limited sovereignty uh, to the Eastern European countries during uh, the communist uh, uh, Warsaw uh, Bloc. And uh, uh, Ukrainian President Bosz Poroshenko Zelensky uh, has not a real right uh, uh, to follow interests of Ukraine because they're mostly subordinated to the United States of America, who is, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, appeared to be the supervisor of uh, uh, Ukraine after the putsch and the coup after the overthrowing of democratically elected President Viktor Yanukovych in 2014. And uh, next step, after political occupation of Ukraine, now we have step by step military occupation of Ukraine, um, not by sending troops, but, but formation of military infrastructure on the Ukrainian territory. And this military infrastructure are targeting against Russia. This military infrastructure has goal to uh, make a threat to Russia for the future crisis. Uh, Is preparation of NATO and United States, the lead of NATO, to the future military crisis with Russia. And uh, Russia has very long experience in the, about this military threat from the Western border. Adolf Hitler with Nazi Germany, uh, who united Europe also by his methods, and Napoleon Bonaparte, Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, who also no, united that, that Europe. Was, uh... Uh, and, uh, so, that 10, was, 10, that 10, was 10... quite a
2: long time ago. Let's let's try and focus on what's happening um, actually today. Do you think that Russia would have that those better international relations if it if it wasn't seen as bullying smaller countries on its border, and actually wasn't responsible for the poisonings of people on on British soil, uh, military threats, uh, economic threats? Did, 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 did actually, Russia shoulders some of the blame for. It's poor relations, for instance, with Britain.
6: It's uh, very easily. It's uh, it's also regarded for us very uh, dangerous. Uh, for example, accusations that Russia poisoning different uh, politicians, uh, poisoning different uh, uh, people in another territory, from our point of view, is preparation for the future attack against Russia. Is demonization of Russia is propagandistic preparation for the future political possibly military operation. The Russian president has to react to those uh, preparations. And uh, construction, military infrastructure of, of the Ukraine territory, of course, it's number one priority. It's uh, the, the main message of Vladimir Putin, which uh, he sent to the Western, uh, uh, Western I would say, counterpartners. Uh, please, Stop doing this.
2: Sergey Markov, uh, former spokesman for the Russian President Vladimir Putin. Thanks very much for joining us. That's all well, so we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. only from Rustolium